Father, we thank you for this Easter season. Lord, we pray that you would just bless this message and speak to our hearts as we open your word in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, let's look at John chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 1. We're just going to look at this together. And we just want to thank all of our visitors for being here this morning. Is everybody cool enough? Is it kind of warm in here? Okay, it got a little warm and worse. But I don't know what was going up on that stage, but I was starting to overheat. John chapter 12, and let's look at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him, There, Martha served, and Lazarus, who was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his head or his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this because not that he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have not always... but for." For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This chapter here, chapter 12, this scene where Mary is anointing Jesus actually happens just before the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is Palm Sunday. We traditionally celebrate Palm Sunday uh, because of the timing of what we celebrate is the last week of Christ. Other Gospels put this anointing after the triumphal entry. But chronologically, this really should be put first. And this is important because John the, John the, um, the, the Apostle here is making some important points. And I think that it's important for us to notice this. That six days before the Passover. And let's think of the timing here. And I like to I like to go beyond just the traditional um, way of we approach holidays like Easter and Christmas. I like to dig into the historical aspect and really know what's going on here. And Jesus comes to Bethany. Bethany is going to be the place where Jesus camps out during the last week. He preaches, ministers in Jerusalem, and then he leaves Jerusalem, goes outside of Jerusalem, and he goes to Bethany where he is in Simon the leper's house. Mark chapter 14 calls it Simon the leper. It's interesting that Jesus would be in Simon the leper's house. Is Simon still a leper? I don't know. But it's called, he's called Simon the leper. Some people believe that Simon the leper may have been a relative to Martha, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so the scene here is, is that Lazarus is there. Lazarus, who's been raised from the dead in chapter 11, the previous chapter, is there with Jesus. And so there's quite a buzz in the city. People are talking about this man who was dead, who is now alive. The whole 
aspect, and we're going to talk about this next week, the whole aspect of the resurrection factor was something that was talked a lot about and romanticized a lot about in old Canaanite religion. And we see that when we were talking about the book of Joshua. We're going to finish that series after the Easter season. And so here's a man who is, that never has ever been resurrected. And here is Lazarus there at the table with Jesus. And so they gave a dinner for him there. This was like a, this was like a dinner. This was like a party. This was a, an amazing get-together. It was like if they were in Texas, it would have been a barbecue. It would have been brisket. It would have been uh, some of the other meat here that we eat. I don't know. I, I was at the Gillen's house. We had some good meat there yesterday, Friday night. Martha served. Martha served. There's Martha. She's now, she's gotten over, it seems like she's gotten over her issue with anxiety and insecurity, and now she's serving in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and she's ministering to people, and she's serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Mary, therefore, and you know, we see Mary, this is an amazing woman, we see her in three scenes in the Gospels, and each scene, she is at the feet of Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. What I think that sometimes we live in a culture that just is so because we're Americans and this is Texas, we're just action people, right? I think Texas is just a place of do it, get it done, right? And I think it's because we were talking about this the other night. It's because the DNA of the pioneers that moved here and had a lot to do with with just the just the the just they just came in and just set everything up, civilized and just brought in. A lot. They worked very hard. And we have this in our mentality that our Christianity has to be work. That it's not true Christianity unless it's, we like to use the word intentional. Intentional is a good word. But Mary here chooses the better thing. She's at the feet of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with sitting and listening to the word of God and getting capacity before we get plugged in to something. Uh, and, and sit and listen. And that is so important for us. Because you know what the devil likes to do? He likes to take us away from the Word, to take us away from those things that, that fill us, that prepare us and get us ready for ministry so that we're serving from an empty, from a half-full cup. Yeah. When we're serving out of deficiency, when we're serving, this was Martha's problem, when we're serving from without being filled, then that can only last a certain period of time before we start giving people my good flesh, my good religious flesh. Yeah. And you know something? Some of us, some of our flesh can be very compliant some of us are very compliant people. We're very good with compliance. Some of us are not very good with compliance. And when there's time to comply, we are rebelling. Some of us have very good flesh. Some of us have very bad flesh. That is not what God is calling. And this is what Mary here is showing us. That she is at the feet of Jesus. She takes expensive ointment. And this is amazing. <clears throat> this is before the triumphal entry. Keep this in mind. This is before the Passover. This is before the Last Supper. This is before... Jesus is, is betrayed by Judas and is, is denied by Jesus. All of this happens in Bethany, and I think that this is like this moment that is very significant in history and is very important for us to understand. She takes a pound of expensive ointment. What it was, was it was an alabaster flask. It wasn't a box. I know in some, some of our King James it says it was a box, but it was actually a flask. And it was something that was made out of alabaster, which was very, very expensive, this was something that was a, probably an heirloom that was passed down from generation to generation. 300 denarii is calculated to about probably the middle, in, the, the middle income for an average American um, for one year's wages, which would be whatever number that is. Think of that. Could be 30000 could be 20000 could be all the way up to $80,000. 
this is a this is a alabaster. This is an anointment. This is an this is a fragrance. This is a perfume that's not like any other perfume. Uh, Romans and um, uh, Westerners would uh, do what they could to get a hold of this kind of fragrance because it was so powerful, it was so strong, it was so expensive that it was traded from the East. And this is something that Mary had in her possession. Actually, it's very possible that Mary's family here had some resources. They had some, they had some, uh, they had some resources in their life. And so she takes it, she breaks it, and this is the kind of this is the kind of flask that when you break it, it's broken and it cannot be put back together. It can't, you can't put a cap back on it. You can't pour just a little bit out. So, okay, here, Jesus, here's a little bit. I'm just going to have a couple drops here. You know, hey, you're going to smell good, but I'm going to save the rest for my family. This was something that needed to be used all at once. This is something that needed to be poured out, and it was a one-time deal. It was, it was a total pouring out of something. And when this happens, she breaks it. Uh, one of the Gospels says she comes behind him, she breaks it, and she pours it over his head and on his feet. And the room is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I like symbolism. I like, the, I like, I like to choreograph things. I like to see this. How would this play out? Here is Mary, uh, saved from an incredible background of trouble. And the room is filled with amazing fragrance. And there's Jesus in the middle of the room. Mary is pouring out everything that she has. Everything that her family could have ever afforded her, she is given. Think with this, think with me on this. Is that she, all that she was, all that her family gave her, all of her treasure, everything that she had was poured out all in one time on Jesus. Seven, six days Seven days before the crucifixion of Christ. Seven days. Think of that. That's a one-time thing. We think about that. We think about the sacrifice. We think about the, the tremendous courage. We think about the tremendous gratitude that Mary had. We think about the tremendous joy, the brokenness that maybe she had, that Jesus had rescued her from. But think of this. It was all. It was everything that she had. It was absolute generosity. And I think that we can't stop there. We can't just stop at that moment and say, wow, what a sacrifice. That was incredible. What an amazing woman. No, I think that we need to continue on here, read the verses, and really see what is the center of the text here. And when she did this, she wipes his feet with her hair. Wow. Imagine that scene. Here's, here's Jesus, a woman, and she probably had, very, of course, probably long enough hair to do this, and she's wiping her feet, his feet with her hair. That's amazing. That's just such an amazing picture of, of, of love and, and purity and uh, appreciation. And yet the most central figure here is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of this whole event. They're in Bethany. Jesus is about to be killed. He's about ready to be crucified. He has talked about it. Uh, this, is about, this, is ready, this is about to be an incredible week of just trauma and just incredible heartbreak and just incredible victory and power. In a week, Jesus is going to raise, rise from the dead and, and then 50 days later appear to 500 people. Yet this moment here, God wants us to understand something, that Jesus here is the center of this scene. I want to park here for a minute because Judas, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples in verse 4 
who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for $50,000 and given to the poor? Wow. Is that like, is that crazy or what? I mean, does that sound familiar? Like, why don't we just, why don't we just take these resources and just be, have like, have some amazing humanitarian operation? Why don't we, why not, why do we spend money on Jesus Christ when we could just use this for something that would be much more, <coughs> much more um, applaudable, something that would be much more glorious? Because I think that when we, when we give everything that we have and we give it in a way that would be very uh, noticeable and that would be something that would be very well welcomed, I think that, that there, is, there is a measure of glory for the flesh here. But we read in another gospel in Mark chapter 14 that uh, the disciples are starting to murmur. So what happens here is that Judas begins to object to this incredible uh, appreciation and love fest on Jesus and he begins to say with indignation and the Greek word there is to be so angry to the point of rage where he gets up and he just says what is this waste and there's Jesus right there who is about ready to lay down his life and to be the sacrifice a, a, a lamb who was already slain before the foundation of the world and he said this not because he cared for the poor but because he was a thief and he would help himself to the funds in the bag. And Jesus said in verse 7, leave her alone. I love that. Jesus doesn't talk about himself first. He says, leave her alone. Jesus is not living in a self-centered. This, this man realizes that he is about ready to be tortured like no other human being has ever been tortured. And Jesus here is not here to say, hey, you know what, guys? Just give me a break. Just appreciate me a little bit. He says, no. He says first, leave her alone. And he says, leave her alone. For she has kept it for the day of my burial. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? We can read that and we can think about that. But you know something? What this means is, is that you don't anoint living bodies. You anoint dead bodies, right? Jesus was alive. Yet in <clears throat> Revelations chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the, of the world. Jesus, is, Mary is saying, and maybe I don't know if Mary knew this or not, but the statement that's being said here in John chapter 12 is that here is Jesus who is a lamb who is before he was born had already made that hard decision that his life was not his own, that he was going to complete his father's will and that he was in no way going to in any way spare himself. He was a living dead man when he was born. And, here, and here's Mary anointing his body for burial. Another thing about this perfume, this perfume was so strong that it would last, commentators say, seven days. That, the, that it was an extremely powerful fragrance. And this fragrance would last at least a week, one whole week. That means that at this moment when, when Jesus goes to sit down with his disciples at the Last Supper, there's that fragrance in the room. That means that when Peter denies him, there's that fragrance in the audience. That means when he's standing behind before Pilate not saying much, there's that powerful fragrance that Pilate can smell. That means that when Jesus is carrying that when he's being crucified, when he's being tortured by these Roman soldiers, there's that fragrance of this amazing spikenard that is that is going into the into the midst of the Roman soldiers. There's this beautiful smell 
And then Jesus, as he's taking this cross up that half-mile road to, to Calvary, to where he's going to be crucified, there is this incredible fragrance that Simon from Cyrene that we talked about last week could smell that. And that was something that every person that visited, that watched Jesus go to the cross, they could smell this fragrance. Why? Because the life of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, was a sweet-smelling Savior unto God. That was the way every sacrifice in the Old Testament was. It was a sweet-smelling savor to God. It was a savor that we read in the book of Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, that it's a sweet-smelling savor. Do you know why? Because the alabaster box was broken. The, the flask was broken. This is, a, this is a sign. This is a significant picture of how the life of Christ, how the body of Christ was broken and something was revealed. The gospel was revealed. The blood of Christ was revealed. Our forgiveness was revealed. Uh, the the um, uh, victory over the angelic strategy to mess up human DNA in Genesis chapter 6 has been defeated. And Jesus now is the victor because the because the vessel was broken. Jesus' vessel was broken. And it wasn't just a little bit, but he was all poured out. All of his blood was poured out. Nothing was left over. Nothing was left for himself. Nothing was held back for him. Nothing was held back. God held back nothing. God held, God held back nothing. Romans chapter 8, if God gave us his son, if he gave us everything that he had, God could have given us the universe. God could have given us uh, endless money. He, God could have given us wealth and riches. God gave us the most precious thing that he had, and that was his only begotten son, his only son. If he gave us, in Romans chapter 8, if God did not spare his own son, will he not give us, would he not give us all things? Think about that for a second. Easter is this day, this day of, of the triumphal entry of Christ coming into Jerusalem is a day to celebrate the lamb that was slain for the foundation of the earth. When we look at the triumphal entry of Christ coming in uh, a little while later here in the book of John, he walks in. And this had so much significance in the uh, Jewish ceremony because on that day that he's marching into Jerusalem, that was the day where people had to bring their, their lamb or their sacrifice for the high priest to inspect it. To make sure that it had nothing wrong with it. That it was blameless. There was no spot on it. And as Jesus is marching in or riding in on a donkey. And we, people talk about that being humility. No, in the Old Testament we read that kings rode in on donkeys. And as, they, as he rides into Jerusalem. There, it, commentators feel that there was about 2 to 3 million people there. 2 to 3 million people that were watching Christ coming in. There was a lot of... There was a lot of Galileans that were there, but they had heard. And you know what? They are all interested to see the big spectacle. And that was not necessarily maybe Jesus, but that was Lazarus. They wanted to see this guy that was dead, but now is alive. This is a picture of the resurrection. You know, people, you know something, you may be, we may be walking into certain situations, but we have someone with us that has been resurrected from the dead. And that's the great story right there. That is what people really need to see. The flask, I want to bring this into some practical application here. The flask, the alabaster box, speaks of the earthen vessel. It speaks of us. It speaks of the treasure that is in us. Mary breaks this flask, pours it over Jesus, 
And Jesus says, let her alone. And then he says later on in Mark chapter 14, he says that wherever the gospel is preached, this will also accompany them. Why is that, why is that said? Why, is it, why does Mark say that? And why does Jesus say that? That wherever the gospel will be preached, that this story will also be told. Do you know why? Because the gospel is Christocentric. It's Jesus-centered. I think that we can get into so much ministry, and I'm, I'm prone to this myself, to get into so much activity that we miss Jesus in the room and we miss Mary anointing him. We miss what God is doing in people's lives. And we, we, we look at the sacrifice and we get indignant because we're missing Jesus in the room. Let's not miss Jesus that's in the room. And let's, let's tune into him. Let's tune into what he's doing. Let's tune into what he's done. Let's tune into his voice. Let's tune into the spirit of Christ. Because that is what changes us. That is what changes our lives. It's what changes our marriages, our, uh, our decision-making. It's what changes our, our teenagers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7-12, through 12, for practical application here, Paul is saying that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power, to show that the surpassing power is not a, belongs to God and not to us. What's this all about? Why does God, what's, you know, why are we, when we get saved, why are we not immediately raptured to heaven? Because it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Because God has put something inside of you and I, and He wants to get that out. It's not necessarily God, God doesn't, God is not, here's what happens, here's what we try to do. We, we have this treasure inside of us, and we try to do whatever we can to, to get away with the day not getting broken. And that we could safely arrive to our bed without any kind of trauma or brokenness or drama or anything like that. God wants to break us. Not because he's some sadistic God. Like, okay, God wants to break me. Okay, God, break me. You know, when we pray that kind of a prayer, God's going to answer that prayer. You know, when we sing this kind of worship, Lord, break me. You know, and God's okay. I'm going to break you. But when God breaks us, it's not the kind of breaking that you see in uh, where God is breaking uh, something because of the lack of value or abuse. It's a brokenness with the purpose that the treasure inside of you would get out. Okay, so that it would be revealed. And this is the gospel. When you and I are broken, something's coming out. And that is Christ in us, your spirit. In, my, um, in the late 2000s, or late, in, the late, late, um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we took some mission trips to... Um, Croatia and Serbia and Bosnia Herzegovina, and we were just expect, we were expecting, especially in Bosnia, uh, Sarajevo. You know the genocide that was happening, the war between three religions: the Orthodox, the Catholic, and the Muslim. And they were all kind of uh, it was just incredible um, massacre and murder going on. And there were these, you know, in the mountains of Bosnia, and it was um, such a mess. And so we went in there. We were thinking we're going to find a lot of broken people, people that are open for the gospel. People that uh, are ready to hear about God. People that are ready to hear some good news. And when we met them, I've never met hard, the, I've never met more harder people in my life. Because they had been broken, they had been destroyed, they had been crushed into powder, and there was no humility there. It's possible that life will break you, and that if the treasure is not coming out, we become bitter. Life, is gonna, life happens to the saved and to the unsaved. It's just that we as saved, as children of God, have the word of life. We have wisdom. We know how to handle life. 
We know how to go at life with the right perspective. We know how to go at things and we know how to process our life because we have the word of life. When God breaks us, it's not because God is sadistic or God is angry at you. God breaks us because there's something in you and I that is going to bless the world. And it's not my flesh. It's not my personality. It's not how well I play the guitar up there, that's for sure. It's nothing that I can do, but it's, it's what is in you and I that's going to change the world. It's going to change your family. And you know something? I was listening to, I don't remember this guy's name. Uh, he, it's the, the very thing that we fight and that we resist and that we pray against, God, deliver me from this. It's the very thing that God wants to use to deliver us unto death. Why? So that we die, so that we're nothing, so that we can remember that we're just unimportant and that, that we're submitted under the thumb of God. No, so that the treasure that's in us can come out and so that people can see it. There are people in this room and there are people that you and I know all over the, all over the place that when you sit down with them and you talk with them, you're, you're smelling something. There is a fragrance in their life. And they don't really have to say much, right? right? It's like you're there and you're like, I just want to sit here and sniff. <laughs> I just want to sit here and enjoy the fragrance because this is an anointing. When we say anointing, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a fragrance. When you sit down with someone who's been through hell and back, who's lost everything, and maybe has done nothing in their life. Has, you know, when you look at Abraham, how many countries did he conquer? How many war? Well, he had a war. He, he fought against the Amorites to get his... his uh, get his relative lot back. But what did Abraham accomplish? I think our American mindset, when we look at Abraham, we'd say, what a sort I mean, this guy is passive. You know, Isaac is passive. But he was the father of our faith. When we think of walking by faith, when we think about walking with Christ, it's not something that we have to achieve. And I'm going to wrap it up here. It's not something that we have to achieve, but just to, to surrender to the breaking process why? Because there's something inside of you and I that needs to get out. And when it gets out, that's what is going to change the world. That's what's going to touch people. When people see, like, you know what? And this is what millennials, and, I, and I, millennials don't even like the word millennials. They don't like to be called millennials. But this age that we're living in, people are looking for genuine, genuineness, authenticity, and they're looking for transparency. And I think that this, the, the youth of this age is prime, are prime people for discipleship. Because they're not oriented to organizations. They're not oriented to political parties. They're not oriented to anything else, but they're oriented to uh, real, transparent relationships. There is something inside of you and I. And when that gets out, then God can bless. When that gets out, that's when God can, that's when God is set free to move in our lives. That's when our teenager sees that I'm walking with God. I remember my mom and dad, and I was in a Christian family, and, and it was rough, you know, as a, as a teenager watching mom and dad, you know, watching mom and dad, the difficulties in life, and them just trying to wrap their hands around situations, and just, and, and you could see their unbelief. I could see their, I could see their, I could see their failures. I could see their flesh. And yet they didn't quit. They pressed on. And that's not what impressed me as a teenager. What, it didn't impress me how godly my parents were. It, what it was impressive for me was is they could have said, that's it. I've had enough of this garbage. I'm out the door. This relationship's not working. Uh, I'm not getting what I need out of this marriage. I'm out the door. But you know what really spoke to us as, as teenagers? That, that God was breaking them and we were seeing something come out of them called patience. We, we could see love coming out. 
We could see brokenness coming out. We could see peace coming out. We could see joy coming out. And we could see very frail people with something very, very powerful inside. Do you know something? The kenosis, I don't know if you know what that word means. It's a theological word in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. And what it, said, what it means is, is that when something is poured out all the way to the end, and there's not a drop left. Kenosis is used in some instances in the Greek to describe an empty, an empty container that has no value. This is what's described about Jesus when he went to the cross, when he went to, when he went to that tomb, was that he was absolutely, totally poured out. He was so poured out, he was so empty, that he was an empty container that was no longer useful for anything else, and he was buried in this tomb for three days. This is what you and I are called to. We live in a society that gets all excited about the alabaster box, that gets all excited about the external appearance. We get all excited about the way things look and the way things are and the way things, the way people talk. I remember, it's gonna, this may be a bit graphic, but I remember, I don't know if you've heard of this man, Richard Wormbrand. He was a um, pastor in, that was tortured for his faith in Romania during the years of communism in Romania. Uh, he was a preacher that would not stop preaching, and the communists put him in prison. And he was tortured every day for 14 years. And when he came out of prison, he came to America. He was invited to come to America, him and his wife, and he would speak. And I remember one time as a 10-year-old hearing him speak, and we were at a service, and this guy was radical. This guy was, like, tortured for his faith. He was in jail. Uh, this guy was broken, broken, broken. And he said... Uh, I remember the service we were at, and this, this woman get, gets up and sings this incredible song. I mean, it was just off the charts. It was beautiful. Then he gets up, and he's not really standing because his feet were beaten so bad he would have to sit and speak. And he said, I'd like to sing to you a song that we used to sing in jail with our, with our other brothers who were suffering for the faith. And we're like, oh, okay, great. He's going to sing. So he opens his mouth, and he starts screaming at the top of his lungs. And he goes, that was, that was our worship service to God in jail. Graphic, huh? This may sound crazy, but you know something? What does God need to do to get the treasure out? What, do, what offense do you and I have to go through so that, so that we say, God, I surrender? Okay, God, I surrender. I, I'm giving you all of my dreams, my hopes, my joys. I'm giving that all to you. I just want Jesus in the room who's anointed, who has the fragrance of God. What does it have to take? It could take years Remember this, that when you and I are in trials and in difficulty and in temptation and, and when we're in, in um, uh, uh, hard times, the temptation is this, that you and I look at ourselves. The devil's, here's what the devil's doing when he's attacking you. He's saying, it's because of you. It's your fault. You got yourself into this situation. You're the, you're the wrong party in this. And it could be, that could be all true. I could be in this situation because I blew it because I was being dumb. But you know what God is saying is, I allowed this in my sovereignty so that I could show you an anointed Christ in the room at Bethany because God's going to do something awesome at the cross. When we allow God to break us, we say, God, I surrender. Okay, God, I surrender. Okay, that, what, whatever it is, I'm bringing it to the altar. I'm leaving it there, the concept of a perfect marriage or the concept of a perfect kids or the concept of the perfect career, or the concept of the perfect church, or whatever it could be. I'm leaving it at the altar saying, God, I'm not touching that, and I'm giving that to you, and I just want Jesus in my life. Anointed people, and that's when we become anointed people, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. I think that's the verse. It says that we are a fragrance of life unto some, 
and death to other people. <laughs> yes. Some people are going to look at yourself, you know, your, your walk with God and they're going to be like, I have no desire to be any part of that. Yeah. I remember as a teenager being in teen class and we had a, a missionary come to speak to us and he talked about how he didn't have any money for food. And they were praying for food. And that God did a miracle and they got, God gave I was like, nope, I do not want that life. I do not want a life where I have to pray for my food. <laughs> nope. That is not attractive. That smells terrible. Uh, let's go get some donuts. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not into that. And you know something? Um, that guy was anointed, and he still is. Are we going to get all wrapped up about the alabaster box? Are we going to get angry at God when God touches the alabaster box? And say, you know what, let me, let me take that. I mean, let me take all of it. Because you know what? It's only when you take God takes all of it that God can give us all of him and all of Jesus. You know something? Maybe God doesn't answer all of our prayers. I'm sorry that's not a church where I'm going to guarantee that God's going to answer all your prayers. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe things happen and they don't change. Maybe God doesn't deliver us from the thorn like Paul had. But you know something I can guarantee? Is that if you and I surrender and just pour it all out on Jesus because Jesus is the issue, because Jesus is it, because Jesus is the center, because we're living in a Christocentric gospel, and because we have a Jesus-centered church and a Jesus-centered ministry, and when we go to when we go downtown or when we go to H E B, where it's it's about Jesus Christ. When we do that, there's going to be an anointing in our life that is so powerful, that's so blessed that when people hang out with you, when they first look at you, they're going to be like, "Wow, I am underwhelmed." But when they start talking with you and the treasure starts coming out and you start sharing with them wisdom, in a in a, 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 a that is pure and it's peaceable and it's entreatable, and it's not some large and in charge kind of wisdom. Coming in and brutally, you know, brutally changing things. People sit down with you and they see Christ and they walk away and they said, I met Christ with that person when I was at their house or when I was drinking coffee with them. I met Christ and they said something that changed my life. Because the anointing, this would be the last thing I say, the anointing breaks the yoke. The anointing breaks the yoke. Not good. I mean, theology is important. Good doctrine is critical. It's important. Uh, Worship is important, but what breaks the yoke? It is the anointing of God. And this is, and this is my fear as a pastor, as we're planting this church, is that we will become so occupied with the alabaster box that the treasure never gets out. Sometimes God wants to break the church so that the treasure can get out. So there can be a fragrance in the neighborhood, so there can be a fragrance in the midst of the city. Amen? Let's bow our heads and pray.